Please be seated. Good morning, St. Michael's. It's a delight for me and for Stephanie, who's on her way at 11, to be uh, with you this morning. Uh, before I begin, I want to thank uh, Father Chris and the whole team. Uh, I'm grateful for their, uh, their fellowship and friendship. Uh, St. Michael's is well represented on pretty much every body that helps guide the diocese, finance, executive, church planting, you name it. And uh, we're grateful for that. And uh, you all are in building mode and mission mode, literally and spiritually. And um, uh, we uh, are encouraged, all of us as the diocese, by that as well. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We Americans are fascinated by royalty, in part because we were from the first the king's rebellious children. Who isn't watching the crown, not to mention the coronation soon of Charles III, who is, after all, our parent church's defender of the faith, though what that means nowadays is debated. The king. There are lots of layers to that, aren't there? First of all, the PR spectacle, which they are very good at. The distant and largely content-free symbol. Further back in history, the Christian monarch. But these are not all. Yet further back in our pagan prehistory, alongside the roots of, say, Halloween, is a more mysterious meaning. The king embodies the land and the people. When he or she, the queen, is ill, the land languishes in drought. In ancient pagan rituals, our forebears knew the fertility of the king and the fields restored in spring to fruitful harvest were closely connected. When the king or queen dies, we all die, at least in the ritual. And when the new king is coronated, we are back to life. You can see traces of this in Psalm 2, for example, where by the grace of the God of Israel, the king begets the prince on coronation day and his new life defeats all their enemies round about. Or try Psalm 72, where the vigor of the new king makes the fields rich with grain on the hills and families rich with offspring. In the times of our ancient and long-forgotten ancestors, the king is dead, long live the king, was deeply true and powerful for them all. Maybe that is why we enjoy shows like Rings of Power with all that romantic hint of our ancient forebears. For we aren't quite as modern as we pretend. Now a sermon is not a movie review. Why am I going into all this? The challenge of the gospel is that it presents reality. More real than what we call reality and not mythology. But still, there is one point of similarity to the ancient views of the king, though the idea is now in the gospel transformed in an important way as well. 
Today's readings are meant to get us ready for Advent. They too are about, in various ways, the end of the world, the last things, what theologians call eschatology. Now, if you listen to these readings, you realize that the world is going to go through something utterly terrible and that there will then follow something indescribably wonderful. First of all, the prophet Malachi, writing several centuries, centuries perhaps before Jesus, says that the world will be incinerated because its evildoers are like so much stubble in a dry field. In the gospel, Jesus tells us that the temple of God himself will not be spared, not one stone on stone. The destruction will be total. In other words, the evenings when you listen to the news and ask yourself, what is to become of us? That grim mood is what lies ahead, but way worse. But as bad as the news is, the other half of the reading is yet more bright. The psalm says God will make everything new, everyone living in security. The same prophet says that the sun will rise after the night storm like a great bird ascending with healing in its wings. You and I, we shuffle along in between. But the readings force the issue in opposite directions, yet worse, yet better than we could ever imagine. What sense are we to make to that, about that? All sermons are actually the same in that their point is Jesus Christ. And that is the same for this one. He's where you have to start to understand every reading of Scripture. When you learn, mark, read, inwardly digest, as the collect of Cranmer says, that's always taking you to Jesus. Luther once said that the meaning of every passage in church is whatever brings Christ to you. Though they are not mentioned, the point of these readings is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Both are far more than just the unfortunate death of a good man and his inspiring example. God's own presence is overwhelmed by evil. The light of God is extinguished. And then Paul says, the one who knew no sin was made sin for us who are sinful in order that we might be the righteousness of God. A mind-boggling sentence. God himself in his son passes through death and judgment so as to emerge in life and in so doing remakes the same world he made in the first place. Jesus' death and resurrection are where you and I are to start, also where we end up, because he is the breakthrough. His death, the passageway, God uses toward life as only the giver of life itself could accomplish. Jesus, the surprising and wounded king, the son of God himself accomplishes this. That's what all the readings are about. 
Now we are ready to hear the readings themselves, as gloomy and bright as they are. They are saying that the world, too, will be crucified and resurrected. The world will undergo something worse and then better than our imaginations could ever conjure. And this will happen not because of something inherent in the world, some natural law. The natural law is that everything dies, and so the world will too, maybe by the extinguishing of the sun or some cosmic event, maybe by our own stupidity, who knows. More than that, the world will go through something that is in the pattern of its maker. That's what the reading is saying. Not just a natural event, but the death and resurrection of Jesus will be seen in the world. Jesus establishes its form. He carves the tracks that his creation will follow. And this is true not only for the world, it is yet more closely true for that part of creation called the church. I once heard a sermon by the late Bishop of Colorado, Bill Fry. He said that Jesus' body, the church, does the only thing it knows how to do, which is to be killed and raised to life. We see this most clearly in this season in the saints and the martyrs, including in our very own day, the church of Myanmar and Congo and South Sudan and China and, and Iran and so forth. To be sure, the church is not equatable with Christ. He is its head. The church, in the meantime, still troubled by sin. Still, we undergo a crucifixion so that the Spirit might continue to raise us to life. What I am saying is that there is a great analogy, a kind of parallel between Jesus' own body and his body, therefore the church, and the larger creature, the world, dying and being raised. We can go one step further. This pattern, it is true in miniature for each of us. We too will undergo the last things. We too bound to die, our little world burned to ash as Malachi prophesies. Not one stone left on stone in our bodies, little temples of the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul calls them. These readings come home to our own kitchens. This too is part of our spiritual advent and Lent, sobering but not despairing. For we here tell of also a hope that is greater than we in our own way could ever imagine. Later this morning and afternoon, this is Confirmation Sunday. So the last word I will direct to them. You can overhear it. There is a parallel between what happens to ourselves and our community and our world. On our own, this would lead at best to a white-knuckle stoicism or more often just looking away. But the heart of the gospel lies elsewhere. 
in the bold claim that what Jesus has already undergone, we too, because of him, will undergo personally and collectively. He is the breakthrough. He is nothing less than the one who made us so as to resolve the stalemate that we, his creatures, have gotten ourselves into. Gospel means that against an horizon more gloomy than we could imagine, we are given in the gospel to hear how God's bright future will be for us, the one that Jesus himself has brought about. First in himself so that it might occur in us. And as a result, you and I gather here on the Lord's day that our lives might be made hymns of praise to his breakthrough now and forever. Amen.